Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, thank you for joining us for the reading of the Sunday, March 12th, Colorado Springs Gazette. I'm Mary Carley. Today, we'll be reading these main articles. Springs Bridge Center Looks to Rebuild Ranks by Stephanie Earls. Williams Named to Lead State Republicans by Colorado Politics. Bailout Boosts Rich Hospitals by Jenny Dean. Taekwondo Center Raises 30K for Nonprofit by Aggie Suka. Springsbridge Center looks to rebuild ranks. The words and the names had been tumbling around Howard Donaldson's mind for days. The newly elected president of the Colorado Springsbridge Center wasn't sure exactly how he'd string together his thoughts, but he knew he'd figure it out before the time came for him to take the mic and deliver a brief memorial address ahead of Thursday's game at the clubhouse on North 17th Street. This is where COVID-19 is thought to have entered Colorado in a super spreader event almost three years ago. Stealing into a weekend tournament where a hundred people, most of them retirees from Colorado Springs in their 70s and 80s, some in fragile health, had gathered to eat potluck and play a game where they spend hours sitting a few feet from one another four to a table, swapping stories about grandkids and travels and passing cards back and forth and around the room. Even before the pandemic, our population was a vulnerable population, Donaldson said. In retrospect, you ask if we had known and closed the center, would that have saved lives? But we didn't know what we didn't know. At that time, no one did. The state's first pandemic death on March 13, 2020, was an 83-year-old club member who played in that tournament February 29th and March 1st, and a number of games the following week before she started feeling sick. How could Donaldson mark the anniversary of the worst episode in the club's 43-year history of a virus that caused the death of at least 10 club members and sent dozens to the hospital and still end on a hopeful note. Treading that balance is part of the Bridge Center's story now as it is for everyone who survived. I only had one person who told me that we should put this behind us and move forward. I agree with that. Let's put it behind us and move forward. But let's not forget what happened or forget our responsibilities, said Donaldson, who's 77. I think this is something we don't ever want to lose sight of. I'm a firm believer that those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. And as you know, COVID isn't over yet. As of early March, the U.S. 
was nearing 11 million deaths from COVID-19, with almost 14,000 of deaths of those deaths occurring in Colorado. While infections and mortality rates are far below what they were when things were at their worst during the early months of the pandemic and the later surge of the Omicron variant, people are still contracting the virus, and each day, 300 Americans still die from it. The number of victims age 65 and over more than doubled between April and July 2022. Deaths among that demographic have dropped slightly since, but remain the highest of all populations who contract the virus. The bit the Bridge Club population is older. Beloved members have passed away for reasons other than COVID, and we've had to deal with that, which is never easy, said David Loring. COVID, however, represented a different kind of loss and lasting trauma. Forty people went to the hospital, 20 went to the ICU, and six died. Those are hard numbers, Loring said of the aftermath of the initial outbreak in 2020. The virus would contribute to the deaths of at least four more club members over the following three years. Colorado Springs Unit 360 of the American Contract Bridge League is one of the largest in the state, with a pre-pandemic roster of 400 members who met at a big blue clubhouse tucked behind a shopping plaza on the city's west side. Unlike most clubs, the members of Unit 360 own the building, a fact that turned out to be a game changer during the club's extended shutdown from March 2020 to July 2021, said 68-year-old club member Jeffrey Rapp, who also runs weekly, weekly games at the center. I think it's one of only three units in the country where members own the building, said Rapp, who said that translates to lower, lower overhead and lower table fees for members, 5 to $6, versus at least twice that much elsewhere. And there have been quite a few bridge clubs that have gone out of business in the last three years because they weren't able to continue their funding and had to surrender their lease. That wasn't an issue for us. It doesn't mean members weren't worried about its future. At one point during the closure, Rapp said, it wasn't clear if there would ever be enough interest in reopening the club for the members' fears of returning to play face-to-face -face and spreading the disease again. Those extreme fears turned out to be unfounded. But there's no denying membership is down, he said. Attendance at weekly games is a fraction of what it was before the pandemic when the space was so packed that recruitment was never a priority. We are making ends meet with everything now being more expensive, but it's tough. We had to raise the table fees a little bit, Rap said. The good news, Donaldson said, is that things, health, and attitudes seem to have turned a corner. There are a lot of people who can attest to having experienced some significant losses, and they soldiered through, so to speak. 
They persevered and became resilient to continue with the game they loved, said Donaldson, and they came back here to do it. Tom Goings is one of those people. He said he worried he might never be able to play at his local clubhouse again, initially because doctors told his daughters he probably would not survive COVID. The 80-year-old spent more than two weeks on a ventilator after being diagnosed in the weeks after he played at the clubhouse in the ill-fated tournament in late February 2020. His family was told he had only a 10% chance of recovery. Almost all my organs shut down. I don't remember a thing about that until they took me off the ventilator, said Goings, who was in the hospital for two months. Despite lingering kidney problems that might or might not be due to the virus, Goings said he's feeling good, especially now that he's able to enjoy face-to-face bridge again at the center where he both plays and directs multiple weekly games. Bridge is such an amazing game, Goings said. I couldn't wait to get back out and play again. When the center reopened in July 2021, it did so with a strict set of rules. For starters, there are no longer potluck-style community feeds. The big picnic table just outside the front doors is now filled with bowls of individually wrapped snacks. Everyone entering the building is required to show proof they've been vaccinated. Donaldson said he's reached out personally to 15 people who chose not to return to the center to ask what it would take to get them back. We don't know what the answer is. Get rid of the vaccine requirement, he said. That's something the board may eventually discuss, but I don't think that's something we're ready to do. And I don't think it's something we should do, especially given the history. Unit 360 is now turning to its next existential crisis at a time when Bridge as a pastime in person and virtually appears to be losing its steam. During the shutdown, many members took up online Bridge. One reason some members may be less driven to return to in-person play, said David Loring, Unit 360's hospitality director. Probably 95% of people who who play Bridge online Never played online until COVID happened, Loring said. When COVID started, online bridge just went through the roof. But even those numbers are down. Other possible reasons for low attendance are more temporary in nature, said club member and bridge teacher Ann Parker. All these people I know had big plans for travel before COVID. That all had to be canceled. Now they're going. So that might be another reason our numbers are down, said Parker, 71. You get to a point where where you're retired, and there's only a window of a few years when you're healthy enough to travel and enjoy life to the fullest. And a lot of the people at our bridge club are in that age bracket now. So they're traveling and enjoying life and doing things they haven't been able to enjoy for the past three years. Parker said she suspects some members who've chosen not to return, simply lost the skill and craving for socialization. 
there are some people that still haven't come back because they lost the habit of being with people and enjoying being with people, she said. Before, we had a lot of new games a week. Now I think we're down to maybe five, six, seven games a week, and they're not nearly as well attended as before. I don't know if it's because people are still afraid or they're just out of the habit. She said fellow club member John DeKellis are doing what they can to bring those numbers back up, teaching beginner classes at the club and on site at a local senior center. Parker's got a beginning bridge class starting Monday at the clubhouse with about a dozen students signed up so far. One of those wannabe bridge players is retiring a week after Parker's class ends at the end of May. He wants to have something to do at that point so he can jump right into playing bridge after retiring, Parker said. A grant-funded beginning bridge class is due to start up at Fort Carson in May. We're doing many different things to try to bolster our community and get people to enjoy this great game, said Parker. About a game fans say keeps their brains and spirits thriving. And hopefully get them out to enjoy this great game here at our center with our great community. About three dozen members of that community turned out to play in the Thursday afternoon game where Howard Donaldson had planned to deliver his brief but dignified address. In the end, that duty passed to Rapp, the game's director. Donaldson and his wife recently learned they'd contracted COVID-19 somewhere in the southern hemisphere during a cruise to Antarctica. He's been on the mend, but then his cough and congestion flared up again. Out of an abundance of caution, I'm making the difficult decision to stay home, he said Wednesday evening. I think that's the only responsible thing to do. Williams named to lead state Republicans, ex-lawmaker known for his combative style. Colorado Republicans on Saturday elected Dave Williams, a former state lawmaker from Colorado Springs, who insists that former President Donald Trump won the 2020 presidential election to lead the state party for the next two years. We need a wartime leader who will boldly articulate our conservative America First agenda while going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the radical Democrats every chance we get, Williams said in a combative speech before the first round of voting at a party meeting in Loveland. Williams takes control of a Republican Party riddled with infighting and reeling from a string of losses in a state whose voters elected Democrats to every statewide office in last year's midterm election. Blaming the party's recent poor performance on feckless leaders who are ashamed of you and ashamed of our principles, Williams quoted Ronald Reagan's call for bold colors, not pastels, and vowed to build a clear contrast with the opposition. He is no stranger to controversial politics. Williams lost a bid last summer to unseat U.S. Representative Doug Lamborn in the GOP primary after trying to include Let's Go Brandon, a phrase deriding President Joe Biden, along with his name on the ballot.
In the party chair race, Williams prevailed in a seven-candidate field dominated by hopefuls who also want to block the state's unaffiliated voters from casting ballots in GOP primaries and share his unsubstantiated belief in widespread election rigging. Christy Burton Brown, the outgoing state chair who provided who presided over Saturday's party leadership election, announced in December that she is not seeking a second term. That means the Colorado GOP will be led by its sixth chair in as many terms. It took three rounds of balloting for Williams to win an outright majority in a race that consisted of former Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters, former congressional nominees Eric Adland and Casper Stockholm, former state lawmaker Kevin Lundberg, former Mesa County GOP Chair Kevin McCarney, and grassroots organizer Aaron Wood. Williams received 54.8% of the vote in the final round to Adland's 45.2%. Peters and Lundberg withdrew from the final round and announced they were throwing their support behind Williams, drawing a rebuke from Burton Brown for violating a rule prohibiting candidate speeches after their initial remarks. Wood, Stockholm, and McCarney also dropped out before the ballot that clinched it for Williams. In his speech, Adland, a relative newcomer to politics, sounded a less aggressive note than Williams. We are the party that loves our Constitution and will not stop defending it to the death, said Adland, an Army veteran and West Point graduate. I am running to be your chairman because... Of the mission I had running for Congress remains the same, he said. We must unite and come together in love, love of our freedom, love of our country, love of our values. Adland lost by a wide margin to Democrat Brittany Peterson last year in the Jefferson County-based 7th Congressional District after switching from the U.S. Senate primary. Our party can win again but only if we first reject their failed leadership and go on offense, said Williams, after blasting the media, crooked politicians, and GOP political consultants. I'm sick and tired of our party always being on the defense. We need to go on the offense. Williams voted to close the primaries so that only Republicans choose our Republican nominees. And defended the state's caucus system, which has come under attack from some Republicans who contend it encourages nominees who can't win outside heavily Republican districts. We are the party that elected Donald Trump, and we are not going to apologize for that anymore, he added. Republican strategist and former two-term state GOP chair Dick Wadhams said that the party appears destined for more time in the wilderness if it pushes unaffiliated voters out of the GOP primary and continues to embrace Trump, who is deeply unpopular with Colorado voters. It's just going to be a wasteland at the 
at the Colorado Republican Party for the next two years, Wadhams said, lamenting that he was unable to support any of the chair candidates. They all believe the 2020 election was stolen from Trump, and they all want to go back to election day balloting to get rid of male elections, he said. It defines the party as crazy right up front. And that's what a lot of those unaffiliated think about Republicans anyway. Unaffiliated voters make up 46% of the state's 3.8 million active registered voters, followed by Democrats with 28% of the total and Republicans at 24%. Williams held a swim a slim lead over Adland in the first round of balloting, followed by Peters and McCarney, who were tied for third place, and Lundberg, Stockholm, and Wood. The party conducted its leadership election by hand-counting paper ballots at the insistence of Republicans who called for ditching the electronic voting devices used in recent party elections. Also elected at the meeting were Vice Chair Priscilla Ron, who won re-election to a second term, and Secretary Anna Ferguson. The Colorado's GOP State Central Committee, made up of 400 party officers, elected officials, and bonus members from larger counties based on votes received by top-ticket Republicans in the last election, convened for its biennial reorganization meeting at the Embassy Suites Loveland Hotel. Since some committee members carried fractional votes, some counties elect multiple vice chairs, for instance, so they share the position's single vote. The meeting began with a potential 377 votes. Notably absent from the meeting were the 19 Republican members of the State House who were prevented from attending due to an extraordinary Saturday session called by Democratic leaders after GOP lawmakers filibustered a gun control bill passed midnight on Thursday. Most of them were able to vote by proxy, party officials said. Known for his aggressive rhetoric during three terms representing El Paso County, based House District, 15. Williams was one of three Republicans who challenged Lamborn in last year's GOP primary. He finished in second place, trailing the five-term incumbent by 14 percentage points. Williams sued unsuccessfully to force election officials to print Let's Go Brandon on ballots along with his name, arguing that he'd adopted the phrase code in some circles for F. Joe Biden as his proper nickname. During the primary, Williams filed a criminal complaint against Lamborn, alleging the congressman's campaign aired attack ads containing false statements about him. But the local district attorney declined to pursue charges. Last cycle, Williams led a charge to opt out of the state GOP, out of Colorado's semi-open primary system, arguing that unaffiliated voters shouldn't be allowed to help nominate Republicans to the general election ballot. Under the plan, which fell short of the required 75% of the Central Committee members, Republicans would have picked their nominees at party assemblies instead of in the primary election. 
Peters, who faces trial this summer in Grand Junction on allegations she tampered with voting equipment, told the crowd that prosecutors do not want to take me into court because there's evidence they do not want you to see. Peters has pleaded not guilty to seven felony and four misdemeanor charges stemming from allegations she helped breach Mesa County's secure election equipment two years ago in an attempt to find evidence that Colorado voting system is rigged. She maintains the charges brought by a grand jury under the local Republican district attorney are politically motivated. Two of Peter's former top deputies in the clerk's office pleaded guilty last year and agreed to testify against Peter's in the trial, which is set for August. Peter's was convicted last week by a Mesa County jury on a misdemeanor obstruction charge for trying to prevent authorities from seizing an iPad she allegedly used to record a court hearing in defiance of a judge's instructions and then allegedly lying about it to another judge. Before the party's leadership elections got underway, several elected Republicans and party officers rallied the crowd. We've got the talent, we've got the energy, we've got the right message, said U.S. Representative Ken Buck, the Windsor Republican who held the party chair position before Burton Brown's tenure. When we leave here tonight, we're going to be united, and we're going to kick some butt, Buck added, echoing a common message delivered throughout the meeting. Describing early conclusions from a Republican National Committee analysis of the 2022 election, Colorado RNC member Vera Ort. Ortegon told the crowd, we noticed in Colorado, not all Republicans voted Republican. She added, people, we really, really have to unite. This is our chance to show we can unite and move forward. In Colorado last year, several prominent Republicans said they couldn't support U.S. Senate nominee Joe O'Day when the latter said he wanted to add protection for abortion rights in federal law after last summer's U.S. Supreme Court decision overturned Roe v. Wade. O'Day lost a bid to unseat Democrat Michael Bennett by a wide margin. Attorney and radio talk show host Randy Corcoran, Ortegon's fellow RNC member from Colorado, drew drew cheers from the crowd when he declared that the state GOP will pursue a lawsuit to close Colorado's primaries to unaffiliated voters, saying that only Republicans should be able to, re to pick Republican nominees. Last year, a federal judge threw out a challenge brought by Corporon and other Republicans who sought to overturn the voter-approved state law, which allows the state's unaffiliated voters to cast ballots in either major party's primary, citing the state party's decision not to join the lawsuit. Burton Brown said the party was prevented from taking part in the lawsuit aimed at overturning Initiative 108 by unresolved questions over whether campaign finance law allowed the move, but can proceed with the lawsuit under the new chair. Colorado Democrats are scheduled to meet on April 1st to elect a successor as party chair to Morgan Carroll, the former state Senate president, who is not seeking a fourth term after running the party since 
2017. Taekwondo Center raises 30k for nonprofit. More than 30,000 was raised for the Colorado Springs Police Foundation during the U.S. Taekwondo Center's 16th annual Breakathon, held at the Colorado, Spr- excuse me, Colorado Springs Christian School on Saturday. For the past 15 years, the U.S. Taekwondo Center has rallied around a chosen local nonprofit to show students the importance of giving back to their community and foster skills to help them grow as individuals and within their Taekwondo practice. In their time holding the annual fundraiser, students at the center have raised $500,000 in charitable proceeds. The center was founded in 1986 and is led by Sang Lee, the first U.S. Olympic head coach grandmaster and his son Jay Lee. Jay Lee said the center has always seen the importance of teaching the students to give back to the community. For us, Taekwondo is not just about the physical kicking and punching. That's obviously a very important part of it. But we want to teach these kids communication skills, confidence, goal setting, community service, and integrity. This year, More than 400 students from the U.S. Taekwondo Center went out into the community seeking sponsors for the Breakathon. This year, proceeds go to the Colorado Springs Police Foundation. Founded in 2009, the Colorado Springs Police Foundation supports the Colorado Springs Police Department to supplement government funding. People probably think that the city budget takes care of everything they need. That's absolutely not true. We raise money for them, whether it's training, equipment, or whatever needs they have that the budget doesn't cover, said Foundation President Nicole Magic. Saturday's event featured a silent auction, face painting, performance demonstrations, and, of course, board-breaking. Students from Monument and Colorado Springs School locations broke boards to raise funds starting at 10 a.m. Of the group was Hannah Lynch, a student of the center for five years. An instructor and member of the nationally ranked demonstration team, Lynch said she loves the sport for its amazing community. It's almost like having a second Taekwondo family. Everyone is super understanding and encouraging. The, fa- the fundraiser closed with demonstrations from the Monument and Colorado Springs teams. Students worked in unison to break boards and concrete slabs through choreographed kicks and punches. Liberty's leaders can be found the world over. By the editor Vince Bizdeck. They are, in the words of Pulitzer Prize winning author David Hoffman, dreamers who dared to wish for more. They are people like Zelensky, president of Ukraine, or Alexei Navalny, imprisoned opposition leader and freedom fighter for Russia, or Masa Amini, the young woman whose death in Iran is fueling mass protests against 
hijab laws. Or Tank Man, the unidentified Chinese man who faced down a column of tanks in Tiananmen Square. They are sometimes relatively unknown to us here in America, like Paisley, a descendant who dared to defy Fidel Castro in Cuba, inspiring thousands of Cubans to fight for democracy. They are liberty's torchbearers, intrepid souls who are lighting flames of freedom all over the world, and sometimes across multiple generations, refusing to let the dream of democracy die. I think there are people like Paya in these places, people with incredible endurance and principle, Hoffman told me. They're not often in the headlines, but they're there. Hoffman, a longtime editor and reporter for the Washington Post, was in town at the tattered cover, excuse me, tattered cover, over the weekend to talk about his new book, Give Me Liberty, the true story of Oswaldo Paya and his daring quest for a free Cuba. Paya formed a pro-democracy movement in Cuba in the 1990s. A devoted Catholic, he championed a simple bedrock belief that rights are bestowed by God and not the state, Hoffman writes. Every day, he witnessed these rights trampled in Cuba. He could not stay silent. In 1998, in the twilight of Castro's rule, Paya launched the Vira Project, challenging Castro's dictatorship with an unprecedented nationwide citizen petition, demanding democratic reform like free speech and free association. The petition was perfectly legal, allowed by a little-known clause in the Constitution that Paya exploited. Paya and his fellow liberty lovers secretly collected over 11,000 signatures door to door, then surprised Castro by submitting them with great fanfare to the National Assembly in 2002. They added over 14,000 signatures the following year, and nuns kept 10,000 more signatures secretly hidden, all told more than 35,000 Cubans signed the petition. But Paya and his movement paid a heavy price. Castro responded by ignoring the petition, arresting dozens of Paya's followers, and sending them to prison for many years. After receiving multiple death threats, Paya was killed in a suspicious car wreck on a remote country road, a martyrdom chillingly recounted in the opening pages of Hoffman's book. Paya's dream of democracy did not die with him, however. Just as he inherited his thirst for liberty from Felix Varaya, a 19th century priest and philosopher who was Cuba's most illustrious educator, so he passed it along to activists and protesters to come. As recently as July 11, 2021, protesters inspired by Paya took to the streets in a massive demonstration. The outpouring was, sports, was sparked by a Facebook live video, and there are still small and local protests reverberating to this day. 
Hoffman believes it's only a matter of time until Cuba is free. I think Cubans lost their fear long ago. It's one of Oswaldo's legacies, Hoffman told me. Cuba today resembles the Soviet Union in 1983. It's showing signs of deep stagnation, added the former Moscow correspondent. There are severe food shortages, electricity blackouts. The country that once produced over a quarter of all the world's sugar now barely produces enough to satisfy its own needs. So conditions are dire. This is one precondition for change. The other is that the Cuban people have to demand change as they did on July 11, 2021. I think the popular desire for change is now stronger than it's been at any time during the last 64 years. At some point, it will break through. Hoffman's story of Pia's journey tries to answer larger questions about the innate quest for liberty. How do people gain the right to think and speak freely, advocate their views, follow their conscience, worship or assemble as they desire without prosecution, Hoffman asks. How do they secure the right to choose their leaders and set the course for their own future? What does it take to attain such freedoms? Hoffman said he tends to be an optimist about the democratic future. Just ask anyone who's lived for a few years under a true dictatorship, anyone who's come against jail time for shouting something in the street, or who has struggled with breadlines, or who has been targeted by the secret police for a tweet. Ask them if they like it. Given a chance, people flee them. Open societies and democracy are more resilient because they're able to self-correct, adapt, and enjoy legitimacy. Interestingly, just as I was talking to Hoffman, Freedom House released a new report that shows after many years of stagnation and backtracking, democracy is on the march again. This year's Freedom in the World survey notes that the number of countries suffering democracy decline in 2022 was the lowest in 17 years and was nearly matched by the number of countries experiencing improvements. If five decades of global monitoring tell us anything, it's that the demand for fundamental rights is universal and impossible to extinguish, the report's authors note. Pro-democracy movements have arisen again and again in some of the world's most repressive environments. Hoffman is realistic about a looming global contest between democracy and dictatorship that did not exist 15 years ago. Something has changed and we're in a new struggle, he said. But he sees the same kind of long-term hope Freedom House does. Oswaldo Pius showed, Hoffman writes, that no state, no matter how dictatorial, can imprison an idea forever. The quest for liberty runs free. Former Donald Trump lawyers censured by Colorado courts for lying about the 2020 election. From Colorado Politics. 
Jenna Ellis, the Colorado attorney who tried to challenge Donald Trump's 2020 election loss as a member of the former president's legal team, has been formally censured by the state's courts for repeatedly making false statements, including claiming that the election was stolen from Trump. As part of the disciplinary action, Ellis agreed that she made numerous misrepresentations in appearances on national television shows and on Twitter in the months after Trump's loss to Democrat Joe Biden. Presiding disciplinary judge Brian Large approved the reprimand Wednesday by agreeing with a stipulation reached between Ellis and the State Office of Attorney Regulatory Council, which recommended a public censure. In his opinion, Large said Ellis repeated false claims, undermined the American public's confidence in the presidential election, violated her duty of candor to the public. He noted that Ellis agreed she had a selfish motive and engaged in a pattern of misconduct, adding that her lack of prior disciplinary action mitigated the transgression. He observed that there had never been a disciplinary case in Colorado featuring misconduct resembling what Ellis did. The agreement listed 10 occasions when Ellis misrepresented the facts, including on MSNBC, Fox News, Fox Business, and Newsmax. Among the false statements was one made during an appearance on November 20, 2020, on former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer's Spicer and Company show. Referring to five battleground states, where the Trump campaign alleged election malfeasance, Nevada, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Georgia, Ellis said, we know that the election was stolen from President Trump, and we can prove that. A day later, she tweeted that Trump's legal team will present testimonial and other evidence in court to show the election was stolen. On November 23, 2020, Ellis falsely asserted during an appearance on MSNBC's The Ari Melber Show, the election was stolen and Trump won by a landslide. In late December 2020, Ellis tweeted that she discussed her claim that the overwhelming evidence proving this was stolen with Denver-based radio host Dan Kaplis. Ellis acknowledged in the agreement released Wednesday that she violated a professional rule that prohibits attorneys from making reckless, knowing, or intentional misrepresentations. Large wrote in his opinion that she did so with a mental state that was at least reckless, describing a legal standard for assessing disciplinary options. A longtime luminary in Colorado's conservative political circles, Ellis shot to national prominence as part of a team of Trump's lawyers and legal advisors who attempted to overturn the results of the 2020 election, including by filing dozens of failed lawsuits alleging election fraud. Ellis taught classes for several years at Lakewood-based Colorado Christian University and is a fellow in constitutional law and policy at the school's Centennial Institute. In July 2021, Ellis declared she was no longer a Republican 
after arguing on social media with Republican National Committee Chair McDaniel over whether the GOP had enthusiastically enough supported Trump's claims of a stolen election. The nonpartisan group that filed an ethics complaint against Ellis last year, initiating the disciplinary action, applauded the outcome. Jenna Ellis repeatedly went on television and on Twitter to promote the reckless lie that the 2020 election was stolen. Aaron Scherzer, senior counsel at the state's United Democracy Center, said in a statement. As counsel to former President Trump and the Trump campaign, she abused her law license as part of an attempt to overturn the will of the American people a plot that ultimately led to a violent insurrection. He added, her lies did lasting danger, excuse me, damage, and her name will forever be linked to this assault on democracy. Scherzer called the public censure an important step forward for accountability and urged courts in other states to take similar action against other attorneys involved in the attempt to reverse the election results. The public censure in this matter reinforces that even if engaged in political speech, there is a line attorneys cannot cross, particularly when they're speaking in a representative capacity. The Office of Attorney Regulation Council, which investigates complaints against Colorado lawyers, said in a statement. The statement added that the office is not pursuing other charges against Ellis. Neither Ellis nor the attorney who represented her in the disciplinary receiving proceeding responded to requests for comment. In the Gazette's viewpoint on the opinion page, Gazette endorses city candidates. Ballots for choosing the next mayor of Colorado Springs and four new members of city council went on Friday. So let the voting begin. The election goes through April 4th, and the public should know the results that evening. The local election is of utmost importance for the city's 500,000 residents. Elections that choose the president, governor, and members of Congress get far more attention, but local elections have more direct ramifications on our neighborhoods, streets, public safety, and what we can and cannot do in our backyards. Colorado Springs has grown in population economically and culturally for most of the past 14 years. The upward trajectory began shortly after voters chose to restructure the city's form of governance, transitioning from a council manager form of government to a system that more resembles the working of federal and state governments. Under the old system, city council made policy and spending decisions. An imported and appointed city manager worked for the council, but too often controlled it. That whole wag-the-dog dilemma. The new system, enacted 12 years ago, requires voters to elect a mayor to function much like a president or a governor. The mayor who answers to the people and not council, runs agencies of the city and can veto the council. The arrangement has given us a separation of powers that better serves the public. 
given the cumulative and positive results of two consecutive strong mayors, Colorado Springs has every reason to elect people who will maintain course. We want more good leadership to sustain our consecutive four-year status as the country's most desirable city, as determined by a U.S. News and World Report survey. Our next leader should continue making this among the world's most coveted tourism destinations. They should continue making their city safe and welcoming for families, businesses, military personnel, and veterans who want urban living without high crime, rampant unregulated homelessness, and retailers selling recreational drugs. The Gazette's editorial board wants the city to stay the course, building success upon success. Toward that objective, the board offers endorsements to one mayoral candidate, three at-large council candidates, and one candidate for District 3. The council candidates we favor are business leaders with entrepreneurial mindsets who understand the importance of limited government and minimally regulated economic growth. Our mayoral choice chairs the board of Colorado Springs Utilities, has worked as a private sector attorney, and managed a major state agency. Voters should conduct the diligence before voting, and we hope our endorsements assist in that process. For Mayor Wayne Williams. It's a safe bet voters would elect Mayor John Southers to a third term if the law allowed. Fortunately, another leader with extraordinary credentials, City Councilman Wayne Williams, stands ready to take his place. A member of City Council and Chair of Colorado Springs Utilities, Williams and Southers have worked together for years, and their accomplishments speak volumes. The risk of law is essential to maintaining fair taxation, regulation, and public safety measures that ensure crime never pays, more than obeying a common set of rules in a competitive environment. Regulations of safety and trade allow economies to grow and improve the quality of life. Like Southers, Williams has a background in law. Southers had substantial executive experience having served as Colorado's Attorney General and Director of the state's prisons. Williams has served locally as Clerk and Recorder for El Paso County and as a member of City Council. Like Southers, Williams ran a major bureaucracy as Colorado's Secretary of State. Williams would govern as a pragmatic moderate, which is what we need to continue improving as a city, in which people help each other through work, play, innovation, education, or service in the armed forces. Southers strongly endorses Williams as his successor for a host of good reasons. To maintain the city's constructive momentum, the Gazette advocates Wayne Williams as the city's third strong mayor. For City Council at large, Lynette Crow Iverson, the creator of Conspiref, a business that serves businesses, Crow Iverson is uniquely qualified to make our community a better place to live and work. A wellness company, 
Conspire helps businesses ensure safe and healthy work environments to enhance the well-being of employees and employers. She told the Gazette her top priorities include public safety, infrastructure, and economic development, all essential components of making the city more attractive to the best employers and employees. Crow Iverson wants a solution to the community's dearth of affordable housing. She attributes the problem to a low supply of homes and challenges such as rising interest rates and home prices that stop prospective first-time buyers in their tracks. Tackling the affordable housing crisis will require all hands on deck and approach at the federal, state, and local levels. The role of the city is not to build affordable housing but to set the groundwork for developers and nonprofits to accomplish such projects. That means she understands the best role of local government. It's not City Hall's responsibility to provide. It's instead the city's role to create an environment in which the market can thrive and provide for all needs. Second, David Lywip an up-and-coming politician, including men and women with unproven skills in government leadership, must have a single answer to the question, why are you running? Most prospective voters will hear and remember a simple, concise praise. Lineweber has this down with a campaign slogan promising the best life for every neighborhood. That's easy to support. Everyone in Colorado Springs lives in a neighborhood and desires the best life possible. Lineweber would achieve this by prioritizing mental health, ensuring responsible growth, and creating a safe, economically prosperous community. Lineweber has worked and volunteered in Colorado Springs for the past 30 years. He's best known as the owner of Angler's Covey, an iconic business that serves as a one-stop shop for fishing equipment and other outdoor goods. Brian Risley, the third candidate, the president and principal architect at CRP Architect PC. Risley designs structures that reduce burdens and help people work and lead better lives. Running his business and working with other businesses, Risley knows which city regulations help and which do more harm than good. Risley's priorities include affordability, public safety, and smart planning for growth. He would reduce the cost of living in Colorado Springs by limiting the cost of government and taking steps to reduce the cost of electricity, gas, and water. He emphasizes our need to protect the natural environment while respecting private property rights. In closing, thank you for joining us for the Sunday Colorado Springs Gazette. I'm Mary Carley. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Network for Good. AINC presents your Low Vision Resource of the Day.
Today, we would like to highlight Disabled American Veterans, also known as DAV, that provides support for veterans. Learn more by visiting www.dav.org or calling 877-426-2838. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Bringing print to life, 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 life.